on average, the grass-based milk was 140% or 141% higher than in the equivalent milk from the TMR. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluel from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're meeting with Dr. Andre Borkob and postdoc dairy chemistry fellow Mark Timlin. They are both located in Ireland, and they're food scientists. And so you're thinking to yourself today, perhaps, um, food scientists. Uh, we're, we're used to listening to animal scientists and production ag, but I think that you'll, you'll find that these researchers are very passionate about better understanding the intersection of, of management and milk composition, and specifically on the grass-based production of grazing herds and how that impacts the nutritional profile of the milk produced in that system. Now, here in America, where predominantly most of my listeners are, I, I know there could be some industry infighting, so to speak, about the right or the best way to dairy. And today's not about that. There is no wrong way to dairy. It's whatever you find the most passion in. I say it all the time, the dairymen work harder than anyone I know. So as long as you're chasing your passion and you're making a profit doing it, it's the right way to dairy. And today we're gonna talk about those that, that put grass in their system and, and how that might be impacting the nutritional quality of their milk. So for those listeners out there that put any amount of grass or grass silage in your herd's ration, let's listen up because the information that we're discussing today is all available to you and is featuring the impact of varying levels of pasture allowance on the nutritional quality and functionality of milk throughout lactation. This is an open access article released in press on July 31st in the Journal of Dairy Science. So guys, welcome to Dairy Science Digest, but before we get the conversation really going, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Regan, for this kind introduction. My name is Andre Brodkop, and I'm based at the Chagas Food Research Center here in Moore Park in the Republic of Ireland. Chagas, that's an Irish word for learning or teaching, is an organization that supports the Irish agri-food sector. So I'm myself, I'm a protein and food chemist or food scientist. So I'm interested in what happens to food through processing, storage, and how it changes, how the structure changes, all the way to the gastrointestinal digestion in the human body. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Mark Timlin, and I'm a Walsh Scholar, PhD student and postdoc here in Chagas Park. My work very much involves the impact of dietary regimes on the result in milk and dairy products and investigating any differences in the processing of these products also. Very good. Regan, I might add, uh, Mark is just finalizing his PhD thesis, so he is submitting in about three weeks time. So this is the hot phase of writing. So he's here because he has all the data at his fingertips, uh, much more than, than myself. 
the the ink is still drying and it's my understanding mark that you spent 270 days of your life about nine months of your life uh really investigating three different types of management strategies one being purely grass one being purely tmr and then one being that partial mixed ration could you describe a little bit more about about the ration or how you set up the the research project to study the entire lactation of these animals uh, yeah, sure thing. Um, so a lot of people were involved in this project. Um, between all of us, we developed this research project that involved what would be a typical Irish pasture-based system. There's a high pasture allowance, including approximately 95% grass, of which would usually be perennial ryegrass, and supplemented then when required with high energy concentrates. And what we wanted to do was to compare this to what would be more conventional around the world globally, such as the total mixed ration which is composed of 40% concentrates, 40% maize silage, and 20% grass silage in our case. And then our PMR, our partial mixed ration, this was composed of our grass-based diet during the day, so between morning and evening milkings. During the night after our evening milking and before our morning milking, these animals were consuming the total mixed ration diet, the TMR diet. So it's a good combination to investigate the full impact of pasture and if we increase the pasture allowance on the animals, milk production and milk quality. Absolutely, Doc. Did you have something to add? So the rationale behind this is really that we have anecdotal evidence that the Irish grass-based milk is better than any other milk in the world. And that's a quotation from my teenage sons that drink, you know, pasteurized milk straight out of the bottle from, from the fridge. But of course, you know, the Irish dairy farmers who practice the grass-based dairy system, they are interested in processors. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the main reasons why we are so interested in is because over 90% of the Irish dairy products are exported mm -hmm. to over 130 countries, and it's worth over 8 billion euro and the high quality of the Irish dairy products led to success stories such as in the market leader, Kerrygold, uh, which is an Irish producer, mm -hmm. butter is a market leader in Germany, which is quite an achievement for a small country like Ireland. So basically, the, the driving force for this study was to substantiate, to create data, and the question, can we distinguish between the different feeding regime, can we create sound scientific data so that you can see significant differences? And when we say significant difference, we mean the statistical term, can we distinguish between one milk that is produced here and another milk that is produced using a different feeding regime? Very good. And it's got a huge economic impact for, for your country. And, and to document that, you employed uh, 54 cows. So you had 18 animals per treatment, three treatments. Uh, can you describe, I, I suspect many of my listeners have some animal science interest. And so could you describe the, the herd a little bit, maybe some of the genetic background or, or what sort of production you're anticipating from them? We averaged out the herd based on their breeds, based on their days in lactation, number of lactations, uh, previous milk yields, so that it was a fair reflection of each diet that we weren't trying to bias any results. So there'd be a, a good mix of animals, mainly uh, Frisian animals, 
which would be fairly common in Ireland with high economic breeding index, mm -hmm. which is one way of scoring uh, the value of the animals based on their milk production and other various traits. So the experimental design was randomized. W one thing that I just want to point out, if you want to change the quality of milk, the protein is basically governed by the genome of the cow, so the DNA mm -hmm. of the cow. So if you want to change proteins, you have to change the cows. If you want to change the fats, mm -hmm. you have to change the diet. And that's really what we what we found during the study and that has been known for quite some time. So you can only change the diet will basically affect the fatty acid profile of the milk. You bet, absolutely. And so let's just dive right into that fatty acid analysis. Your lab analyzed uh, 22 different fatty acids in the milk samples that you collected, of which 19 were significantly different. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners just a, a broad sweep of the brush, a, a little historical literature reference about fatty acids in milk and and which ones are, are relevant to to human nutrition? There's a couple of ways that fatty acids are derived in milk. So one is that cows actually produce some fatty acids through the fermentation of carbohydrates in the rumen, and this is absorbed into the blood and then into the mammary glands. And the other way then is through feed. So direct ingestion of grass or maize, which have different fatty acid profiles themselves. And these are broken down in the rumen also, absorbed into blood and uptaken into milk through the mammary glands also. But that's one of the big reasons we found differences in the fatty acid profiles in milk. Mm -hmm. So like the grass has higher proportions of alpha linoleic acid and lower proportions of linoleic acid compared to the likes of maize. Mm -hmm. And this follows through into the milk quite substantially. Just almost spills over. Yeah. So a bird's eye view of the fats. Fats are basically triglycerides. So they have a three arm frame. And off this frame, basically the individual fatty acids. And when you characterize fats, you basically look at the different fatty acids. So over the last 40, 50 years, dairy fats have uh, received a very bad press. And one of the main reasons was that they are relatively high in saturated fats or saturated fatty acids and relatively low in unsaturated fatty acids. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, that has slowly changed. So it is not quite as easy that you say, you know, saturated fatty acids or saturated fats are bad, unsaturated fats are good. So uh, you have to take a deep dive into the individual fatty acids and how they are distributed. And that's exactly what we have done here. And, I and so as as you were saying, somehow these these CLAs, even though they're a trans status, they're they're considered heart healthy and, and definitely something that we need to be focused in on. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in and talk about some of the biologically relevant conjugated linoleic acids that you guys were seeing and the concentrations and the differences between the treatments. Let's just roll right out. What were some of your observations? You, you rightly point out that there's one particular group of fatty acids and they're called conjugated linoleic acids. They have two double bonds, so they are PUFAS or uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're actually trans fats. So trans fats have a very bad name, but there are two types of trans fats. One 
are naturally occurring and CLA, conjugate linoleic acid, is one of them. And others are industrially produced and they're usually the bad trans fats. So uh, CLA or conjugate linoleic acid has been shown, has been associated with uh, heart health, anti-cancerogenic, anti-diabetic or uh, anti-hypertensive properties, which are all good. So uh, on average, the grass-based milk was 140% or 141% higher than in the equivalent milk from the TMR, from the total mixed ration indoor indoor feeding. And that's the average over the whole year with a peak around August. But the average is about 141% increase. If you look at other groups of fatty acids, we have 83% increase in omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. So omega-3 fatty acids are again unsaturated fatty acids and they are mm-hmm. good fatty acids. So the grass-based milk has a higher content of omega-3 fatty acids. And overall, all unsaturated fatty acids, there's an increase of 14% of unsaturated fatty acids. So they're the good fats in uh, milk derived from the grass-based dairy compared to the indoor TMR feeding system. And so, you know, you reported it as an unsaturated index also. And when you look at it graphically there on figure five, you can see the the grass-based milk just just towering over the other two. And your PMR is kind of tangled within the similar data lines of, of your TMR. And so it's just really speaking to the fact while the PMR was intermediary for some of the observations in many cases it ran more in alignment with with the tmr but let's talk a little bit about total fat total fat production for your pmr versus the other two treatments you saw a decrease total fat production for the pmr could you speculate why that might have been yeah so the big reason for this was for the main reason that total mixed ration tends to inc- increase milk yields, which is why it's probably one of the main reasons it's become one of the more used feeding regimes around the world. But with the PMR system, then we found that there was an increase in milk yields and overall milk fat yields. However, the milk fat percentage didn't increase with the same percentage. The milk fat yield didn't increase with the same percent, the same rate as the overall milk yield, and therefore the milk fat percentage was slightly lower. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's herds that I work with here that run a PMR. And just anecdotally, I find that to be the most challenging system to manage uh, because of perhaps the inconsistency with with the rumen. Right. Um, You've got that high quality flow of amino acids coming from your from your grass that's readily available to the rumen and it creates a lower fiber intake overall because it's very lush soluble degradable fiber there and it just is it's a hard system to manage to make sure that you get a consistent intake from those cows is that what you noticed over the year Uh, we've great staff here in chagas moor park as well that help manage the cows extremely well and as a research center it's very advantageous here but the other one big thing we noticed is the difference in somatic cell count which is quite often a good indicator of the other health of the animal and whether the animal is going through stress And our PMR diet actually had a higher somatic cell count than our other two treatments. 
So this might be an indicator of some stress in the animals as well, despite our overall somatic cell counts in all three systems being quite low. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I would agree. And the investment costs for a lot of dairy producers around the world would also be extra because you would also need the, the management of the farming systems as well as the investment cost for feeders for the mixed rations and the grazing knowledge also. You bet, absolutely. The reason why we introduced the PMR, so partial mixed ration, into the experimental design was we want to see uh, whether there's a direct correlation between the grass intake and the effect on the nutritional components in the milk, because there are other factors, you know, movement of cows or indoors, outdoors, all kinds of other things. But in this system, we can actually correlate the amount of grass with the components in the milk. So it's somewhere in between. It is not always uh, in the middle, but mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, in, in many instances it is. Honestly, you know, every single podcast, I, I just think to myself, what a beautiful beast she is and her ability to transfer these nutrients from green grass into her blood. And then that blood fuels her mammary gland. And it's just incredible how that all flows through the system. And circling back to your somatic cell count, as you look at that on figure one, yeah, you can clearly see, and especially through the summertime where that starts to peak off a little bit while there was no time effect, but overall a treatment effect on on somatic cell and I would like to talk a little bit about figure four um, that hierarchical clustering heat map very colorful map and for those of you listening in uh, you there's a clickable link at the bottom of the discussion where you can go straight to this open access article and view figure four it's a fantastic it's a fantastic way to summarize data that I've, I've never seen before. Could you talk me through the hierarchical map and explain, explain what we're looking at here? Yeah, so we kind of like to visualize the data in two different ways. So our first one was also in figure three in their PLSDA, where we can actually visualize the differences in the diet, in the milk of the feeding systems based on their fatty acid profile. And we can actually separate the feeding systems based on their fatty acid profile and visually separate them. See that there is differences from each feeding system. Figure four is also another nice way to visualize the differences rather than just seeing numbers on a page. You can actually see the relative abundance compared to the other feeding systems. So for example, right at the bottom of the figure, we can see our CLA is much higher in grass compared to TMR and PMR. So when I'm on about relative abundance, I mean comparing one diet to another. Mm -hmm. And from doing this, we can actually see what the two diets that are more comparable. So right at the, up at the top of the figure, it indicates that the blue and the red diets or TMR and PMR are more similar than that of grass mm -hmm. based on their fatty acid profiles. Yeah, really fascinating way to display the data. I'm a very visual learner in that really helped me kind of distinguish the color gradient in the hierarchical clustering heat map here also helps me visualize how there could possibly be a, a distinguishable metric to test and determine and to differentiate this milk through the processors. Could you talk a little bit about what, what biomarkers do you think the industry could or should use to really validate these grass-based milk? So uh, this project was financed by uh, by Chagas, by our organization here, and by Food for Health Ireland, which is a technology center funded by Enterprise Ireland and four big food producers. 
And in this overall project, so the paper that just came out, that is a first paper, because uh, subsequently we, uh, we also produce butter, whole milk powder, and mm. cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that will come out one after after another. But we also work collaborators in Food for Health Ireland in the University College Dublin. Uh, so we have several approaches and we wanted to distinguish between milks of different origin. The first approach was an isotope approach. So basically look at different isotopes, carbon, nitrogen, sulfur, oxygen. oxygen as well. So they look at isotopes and they were successful in distinguishing Irish grass-based milk from other milks. The second approach was the metabolomics. You basically look at a number of very small molecules that are produced by the cow or by in the rumen by the bacteria. And you basically look at look at it from a statistical point of view. And can you distinguish or can you even predict the content of Irish grass-based milk in a mixture? And the third approach was our approach, looking at the macronutrients and the fatty acids. So there were three approaches. And at the moment, we are just evaluating which one would, would be the best. We uh, presented, you know, one approach, and that is looking looking at the fatty acid profile, in particular, mm-hmm. some of these fatty acids. So in figure three, you see that the CLA, the conjugated linoleic acid, uh, contributes most to this distinction between the three groups and followed mm-hmm. by two or three other fatty acids. So there, at the moment, there are three approaches. And probably over the next year, there will be uh, two other approaches being published. And then uh, we, are, we are trying to uh, have some kind of review paper of looking at the whole uh, number of studies and make recommendation how to distinguish between them. Sure. And I might be getting into an area that you may or may not want to discuss, but um, the bottom line is that when you derive this high plane of nutrition, which results in a milk product that has a higher plane of nutrition for humans, the volume goes down. And the reality is that those cows generally produce less milk. And I think on average it was uh, 25 kilograms or, you know, they're averaging 50 pounds of milk. And um, and while I mean no disrespect, because I believe that, you know, as far as cash flow and total dollars in the pockets of dairymen, that likely cash flow is just fine. But, but the reality is if you're going to produce half the volume of what we tend to have here at the United States, there's got to be a way to differentiate this product to ensure that the marketability of it um, is protected. And and I'm, I'm curious if you have any comments about how can we protect those grass-based dairymen to ensure that that label of grass-based milk is not compromised. One of the reasons we picked the Irish grass-fed system is because of the development of the grass-fed dairy standard for Irish products around this a similar time, which states the minimum amount of grass a, an animal must consume, minimum amount of days at pasture that the cows must be, um, that the milk must be produced from. Um, this is one of the key aspects of the project in that up to 99% of farmers in Ireland should be able to supply milk with this grass-fed standard, thanks to our luscious green grass here that's so easily grown in Ireland. Yeah, so that's one of the main reasons grass here in Ireland is it's much easier to grow than in other countries and it's a low cost to 
to produce compared to other feeds. So in Ireland, we generally try to maximise the grass-fed produce. And this is why we quite often have seasonal calving systems here in Ireland as well, which we implemented in this project. That approximately 87% of cows are calved between the months of March and April to maximise the use of grass as the primary feed source. And this generally through studies um, conducted here in Chagas Moor Park as well, we found has a lower environmental impact compared to using the likes of maize in Ireland as well. And um, so this is one of the main reasons for the grass-fed dairy standard, that when we're exporting our 90% of our dairy produce abroad, that it has the scientific proof points behind it as to why it is a very beneficial feed. And this should hopefully correlate back to the farmers then who are producing high quality product from a natural source and allowing the animals to graze in their natural environment. So something else. Um, yes. So Mark produced a number of products. So the first part was basically looking at the composition of the milk. So Mark basically analyzed the milk on a weekly basis, averaged them over the month and subdivided in early, mid and late lactation. Uh, so that is basically milk. But subsequently, Mark, with my colleagues Sean Hogan, Owen Murphy and Diamond Sheehan, produced butter, whole milk powder and cheese at a pilot scale. Mm -hmm. Pilot scale is important because we have a pilot plant here on site and Park Technology Limited, which is a very unique facility in the world. So we produce these food products, they are commodity products. And we analyzed them again, but uh, some of the products that went into an ongoing human intervention trial mm. that is happening in University College Dublin, where they uh, consume either whole milk powder or cheese, mm. double blind crossover study, six weeks grass versus TMR. And they basically analyze the change in their circulating blood lipids and fatty acids cool. in the blood. To basically see whether it matters. Yeah. You know, we are talking about these changes in the fatty acid, but does it actually matter? So they will measure the circulating blood lipids and fatty acids and look at some of the health biomarkers to find out whether there is a health effect. And we have so much data now, we can actually explain why we have a health effect or not. It's an ongoing trial, so I don't want to be a preempt. Sure. And and in parallel to that. We have a sensory study. So Mark did some analysis here with high-resolution gas chromatography, mass spectrometers, and in parallel, they do a sensory study to see whether you can distinguish or you know what kind of preference there is for the different dairy products, and that would be for cheese, butter, and whole milk powder. Absolutely incredible. So this is just the tip of an iceberg. Not only do you have the three or four additional papers here that are coming on, but I can't wait to see the human research side of things getting published. Do you anticipate that maybe next year or the following? The trial is ongoing as we speak. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it is it's time limit because, uh, you know, cheese only lasts uh, right. a certain amount of time. So it has to be, a you know, a mid-ripened, if I remember right, was a nine months maximum nine ripening months, time. Think, yeah. So it is ongoing at the time, uh, at this this time. So they just got the, the results and I would say it will be published within the year. Wow. I'll definitely be on the lookout for that. And, and a great way to to justify all this work. I'm so 
I'm so excited that you guys were able to commit nine months, uh, the entire lactation. And in the discussion of the paper, it, it says that there's not been another research project of this magnitude that's yet been conducted. And so while we have other historical references that we can reference back and better understand the biology that's happening, there's nothing been documented for the entire lactation. So um, I, I very much applaud you guys for capturing that scope of of information so perhaps this animal scientist is is a little bit ignorant about the next few questions but i i noticed in the data set that there was a difference in in the whey protein and the, and the protein ratio and casein and whey ratios and and maybe even your hct can you talk about the heat coagulation time what what were some of your findings that have industry relevance uh regarding these different treatments in terms of our heat coagulation time, this is a key industry parameter. So like we said earlier, approximately 90% of our products are exported. So in doing so, it's difficult to transport milk long distances. So the likes of if we were exporting to the US or Canada, we generally wouldn't export fresh pasteurized milk because by the time it reaches the US, it will have be, might be close to its expiry. So as an alternative, we generally produced butters, whole milk powders, cheese, even UHT milk, so that it lasts longer distances. And in terms of our butters and other dairy products like that, we can actually take some of the water out and produce a more nutritionally dense product these distances. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our heat coagulation time, this is a test commonly used in, in industry to test if our milk would be suitable for a lot of these high temperature processes. So for the likes of our UHT milk, this generally goes through a high heat treatment to ensure as much bacteria in the milk is killed and the milk will last even longer than that of pasteurized milk. If our HCT is poor, it's generally not good for use in ultra high treatment. It may cause issues in the actual process itself, such as blocking of spray dryers hmm. or the milk might start to coagulate within the pasteurization step. So generally, if the milk is of a poor HCT, we generally don't use it for processes like this. Hmm. So it's just a good indicator. Your grass-based milk was elevated in your heat coagulation time, which made it desirable for the long shelf-stable pasteurization method. Is that correct? Yeah, that's spot on. And even the likes of our milk okay. fat globule size is another test then that's commonly useful for butter production. Mm -hmm. And there we can see that the stage of lactation, we we would of the milk fat globules would suggest that the the different parameters for butter production such as the churning time might be quicker in early lactation because of less stable milk fat globules fantastic and so i i guess that that circles back to the marketing component or piece we've got to have a milk that's easily processed so that we can get it into these high value products and therefore support the dairymen because in the end if the dairymen aren't financially supportive for the milk that they're producing we won't have it Right. Um, and so it, I applaud you guys for doing all of this research to ensure that dairymen that are choosing to produce milk in this way are are protected financially in, in the marketplace. I do wonder on the high temperature shelf stable aseptic type line, are there any changes to to the fat and the protein that makes it less bioavailable? No, just I suppose the only thing in terms of that is just the ultra high treatment, like the treatments are kind of designed to reduce differences in the, in the product as much as possible. But the likes of UHD, 
there's going to be mm -hmm. a certain amount of protein denaturation and mm -hmm. that has an effect on the digestibility. It is a the protein, if you unfold a protein, you know, as you have caseins and whey proteins, it does affect the digestive behavior. Okay, so you can actually change from a fast digestion to a slow digestion, but overall, the animal proteins and dairy proteins in particular are highly bioavailable, no matter what you do. Okay, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. if you have a, let's say, a sterilization sort of, you know, 115 degrees for 15 minutes, it is a little bit different because there you, you lose lysine. Okay, you have Mayotte reaction products, you actually lose you know, one of the essential amino acids, lysine, and there's an in, uh, index for that, you know. Mm -hmm. But in general, heat treatment, yes, it unfolds the protein, but the overall bioavailability of nutrients is barely affected by it. Mm -hmm. okay, you do change the digestive okay. behavior, and we have some very nice data on that. Uh, yes, there are differences, you know, but overall, the differences are, are small. Okay, mm -hmm. so we we have uh, very nice in vitro models, but we also mm -hmm. work in vivo. So and some of these models have nicely shown why, for instance, whey proteins are fast proteins and why mm -hmm. caseins are slow proteins. Very nice work. But overall, at the end of the small intestine, most of the proteins are digested and absorbed. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah? So that is probably a, one of the advantages of their animal proteins and uh, their proteins in particular, that they are highly digestible. We're just meant to consume them, right? Uh, she's a, a beautiful foster mother. Now, so that's focused on the amino acid side of things. What about what about the fat? Does it oxidize at all through the heating? There is probably some amount of lipolysis. In other words, that they're breaking off the triglycerides, mm -hmm. and that will give it a bit more of an off flavor. Mm -hmm. But there's not a huge amount, not that I've read anywhere anyways yet. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'd be curious if the consumer panels can pick up that in the sensory panels. Will that be part of the part of the research that's ongoing? There's well, generally the treatment, not because we are comparing the three groups, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. there have been studies in the past, you know, and you, you can distinguish between, you know, low heat, medium and in high heat, no doubt about it, you know. Mm -hmm. But from a nutritional point of view, it's probably not quite as drastic as you would think think it is. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So if you if you got 140 percent more CLA, if you break off a few of those branches, it still doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Oh, and it's still be fairly digestible too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, right. The flavor Good. itself might be slightly impacted. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's probably a, Fantastic. You know, oxidation, you know. Uh, you do have fat fat oxidation, but you know heat is only one one factor that affects mm -hmm. fat oxidation. You know this is great, guys. I really appreciate all the content and your knowledge and dedication. So, you know, what would you like boots on the ground dairy producers to to know about your research project? I suppose the big thing is that it's not just a snapshot in time. So, for the milk we collected over a full lactation cycle, but for the future work that'll hopefully be published fairly regularly over the next year and across the project as well, that when we produce butter, it wasn't just one time point in the year. It was across, again, we produced it in early lactation, we produced it in mid lactation and late lactation. So, it's not just getting a snapshot in time where we're trying to bias the results that we know the likes of CLA might be higher in, in August. 
we try to get a, an accurate representation of a full lactation cycle or notice any differences that might be caused by stage of lactation, such as the differences in the fatty acid content in March is he actually healthier for consumption because the cow is in a negative energy balance and can't mm -hmm. produce some of those fatty acids herself and uses up some of her fat, her own fat reserves, which are very high in polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are good for human health when consumed. Yeah, that's, and, uh, you know, kudos to Mark and those that initially designed the, the trial, that's Tom O'Callaghan and Karina Pierce, Michael Donovan and Deirdre Hennessy. They designed the trial and, you know, that gives us the, the information that you can look at the whole picture, you know, over a whole lactation, not just pick up a piece of cheese, you know, in, in June and then make a big story out of it. Right. We can see, you know, differences over the whole lactation period. And we are scientists, so that means we we want to look at the data and don't just base it on wishful thinking, but on data and sometimes the effect of seasonality. And that is a big thing here in, in Ireland because the Irish dairy based the Irish dairy system is based on seasonality. So the calving mm -hmm. is synchronized with a, a grass season. You know, sometimes you have a bigger effect from the seasonality than from the actual feed. And, you know, we, we don't have any problem in, uh, problems in, in publishing that either. You know? Yeah, right. The, the data doesn't lie. Well, guys, this has been very informative, and I want to thank you for your time. And to you listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day today to learn about how grazing management can impact the nutritional quality of your milk and therefore your consumer base. And so I've really enjoyed our conversation, and this has been the August edition of the Dairy Science Digest, which is a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of producers. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press, and it's sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided by your University of Missouri dairy team. So please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Bluell with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day. Mm -hmm.